We are back. And in this hour, we're talking about that stunning decision by the Texas Supreme Court essentially denying abortion care health care to 31-year-old Kate Cox. Joining me in this hour is Christian Nunes. She is the president of the National Organization for Women, otherwise known as NOW, and Sabrina Pelcuchter. She is the director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. And Sabrina, I'm sure I butchered your name, so please uh, say it for me so I can get it right the next time. No, it's scarier than it looks. It's Talukter. You are great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. And welcome back, Christian. It's been a minute since we talked, and I didn't think that it would be a case like this uh, that would bring us back together. But tell us your initial thoughts when you, you know, read or found out about the decision handed down by the Texas Supreme Court in this case involving 31-year-old Kate Cox. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on um, your show again. Um, Well, I have to tell you that what we're witnessing to me is essentially extremely just devastating, but very angering as well. We're seeing the Texas Supreme Court uh, making it very clear um, that they have zero concern for women's legal protections, women's health. um, And they're really just focusing, you know, really, truly trying to score points in some ways. um, for a set of the right wing. I mean, this is very extremist action that we're seeing happen to have a termination take place where they side for the for the uh, Kate Cox and then to reverse it, knowing that they, the medical doctors and professionals have said that this is life-threatening and she needs this. Um, and then to go back and reverse that decision really tells you this is not about preserving the livelihood or making what's best for the person, but really about like, you know, extremist politicians and ability to try to control a woman's body. No, absolutely. I agree with you 100%, Christian. And Sabrina, I think what's also stunning about everything that we've seen in this case is the letter from the attorney general in the state of Texas that put Kate Cox and her doctor on notice that if he or anyone else assisted her in an abortion that they could face felony criminal prosecution as well as substantial civil fines. I have to imagine that any doctor reading about this case is going to think twice, three times, 10 times, 20 times before they make a determination that there is a need for abortion care under this Texas law. What do you make of that letter from the Texas AG? Thank you so much for having me. And I completely agree. This letter is terrifying because not only is the Texas Attorney General using the limited resources of their office to threaten the prosecution of the doctors and hospitals and people who are just trying to do their job with first degree felonies and over $100,000 in civil fines. But this instance really is one of many examples of what is happening across the country after the Dobbs decision. And we've seen, and it's been recorded, how OBGYNs and other medical professionals are so scared to provide sometimes basic pregnancy care to their patients. 
In a recent national survey of 569 OBGYNs across the country, one in five OBGYNs report that they have personally felt constraints on their ability to provide care for miscarriages and other pregnancy-related medical emergencies since the Dobb decisions. And 64% of OBGYN surveys said that the ruling has worsened their ability to manage pregnancy-related emergencies. And what cases like this and what, you know, the words and power of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton really signal is that the punishment is going to be real if doctors and medical providers, doulas, etc., just try to do their job. And what I find really terrifying about this case is that in this ruling that the court issued, they are saying what a physician can and can't do, what this emergency law mandates and doesn't mandate. And it really shifts the burden of proof to physician testimony. And you're bringing a physician into a court of law where their medical opinion will be on trial. And as you noted, that is terrifying and really, you know, provides a chilling effect for physicians and medical providers to do their job. No, absolutely. That, that's scary. And again, you have judges who've never stepped foot in a medical school have never delivered a baby, has never provided any kind of reproduction. Is that individual cases can be de decided so inconsistently. I mean, if we had 10 different women with 10 different doctors uh, opining about their medical care, I can envision 10 different decisions. So how do we ever get, you know, consistency? And that's what the law is supposed to do, provide us with a roadmap. Like in these cases that are similar, you can expect this to be the legal outcome. I don't see that being possible in cases like this one, where judges are deciding what constitutes an exception in the absence of, you know, uniformity around what exceptions should be. Christian, what are you thinking about that? Do you think we're going to have, you know, decisions all over the place? I, I absolutely do, Ariva. I mean, if we really think about um, the fact that because these decisions really aren't like exactly what um, you said, Ms. Sabrina said, it's like these decisions, you know, we have, um, you know, judges and, and making determinations about medical determinations that they're not qualified to make. And it will be the same if we were having um, medical providers trying to make legal determinations. You know, I don't think anyone would be okay with that. Um, someone who is not qualified and is out of their scope making a determination that could be like life altering. And so when you have someone that's coming in and they're trying to figure out, determine, and, and not fully educated or aware of what is considered a medical emergency or life, you know, or life altering, deciding, oh, well, you know, I think maybe this is or this isn't. I mean, we've clearly seen some people don't even know really fully how the body really fully functions or operates in anatomy when they, they didn't believe that, um, you know, some a talk of pregnancies or, you know, or or some there were some laws where talk of pregnancy were considered abortion, you know, abortions and people were saying certain things and or that they were waiting for miscarriages and not understanding the risk of miscarriages. So it's a it's a huge concern. Um and I think we really have to pay attention to the fact that that it's really coming down to people's personal values 
on what they feel. And I think that's going to be the part is that we're moving away from these basic guidelines that make consistency and integrity. So to it's going to go more toward a person's personal value system that's going to be playing into these decisions. And, yeah, and we know Sabrina, very, very dangerous. And we know Sabrina, when the court overturned Roe v. Wade and threw this back to the states, that we were going to have this chaos. And now it's coming to pass, the chaos that all of us knew would happen. But but talk to us about the patriarchal nature of this as well. I can't help but be so incensed about the fact that we don't see courts making these kinds of decisions when they come to males and the health care of men. Of course, it's, um, you know, there really are no words to describe the aftermath of the Dobbs decision and how gendered the consequences of that decision has been. And we can see that in the confusion, the mass chaos that's happened across all of these, across state lines um, for, and particularly from the most marginalized communities. And again, the individuals that are making these decisions at every single level in our judiciary system happen to be men. Um, we can turn to even just in Texas, what's happening with a bigger case with medication abortion. That's um, the Supreme Court is supposed to let us know if they're going to certify the case. But the language of that judicial opinion from um, District Court Judge uh, Kaczmarek was horrific. It was riddled with language on what women should and shouldn't do, what constitutes a pregnancy, what doesn't. And this was with someone who has no medical experience, has no education around scientific standards, etc. And what we've seen consistently is that the opinion of men is replacing scientific and medical experts' um, standards that have been nationally upheld throughout different hospitals and physicians and practices, of course, but that it completely impacts all of this, the, the individual that is feeling this the most are women. And in this, in this case, Kay Cox was able to travel. How, it, she was able to travel in order to get her abortion. However, that is not the norm. What we know in Texas is that all, about, all but one of Texas neighboring states have banned abortion to some degree. And so folks in Texas have to fly to New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas in order to receive care where there's already mass delays in those states. And what this means is that the language of the patriarchy of men in our, judici- in our judicial system has directly impacted the most marginalized communities, the most marginalized women who cannot afford to seek the legal assistance, who cannot afford the the car ride, they can't afford to take time off of work, the opportunity cost of seeking basic health care, basic pregnancy care is too high. No, absolutely. I couldn't help but think about that. Thankfully, Kate was able to go out of the state of Texas to get that abortion. Time was of the essence. The court didn't seem to be moved by the fact that she was already 20 weeks pregnant and she already had this opinion from her doctor about the harm that she was facing. But but Christian, let's talk about how this case should cause women all over this country, not just Democratic women, but Republican women as well, to vote in, you know, numbers hopefully that we've never seen before, and hopefully to vote men out of office like the uh, you know, GOP legislators who want to make it even more difficult to get abortions. Uh, in some of states, they've made it such that even 
in cases of incest and rape, women cannot have access to abortion. So what are you expecting to happen in the presidential election next year around abortion care? Well, I will tell you what we have seen, um, you know, just in this last election um, and even in the midterm, you know, we have little last session of midterms. We've seen that when every time abortion was on the ballot, um, you know, women organized, um, feminists have organized, allies have organized and fought back and, and galvanized to, to against, against any abortion referendum that was trying to restrict a woman's right to bodily autonomy. And so we have seen this consistently over and over again. When it was for protecting it, it passed. When it was for taking it away, it failed. Um, so we know that people, abortion is one, is going to definitely be on this ballot. Um, abortion access and reproductive freedom will be on the ballot. But we also know that people are tired and women are definitely tired of people trying to tell us what and how and, and to do with our bodies. And so it it's going to just... I encourage and and mobilize and I think fire people up even more to make sure that they're getting the true information out there about what reproductive freedom looks like and what it is, because there is a lot of misinformation and intentional disinformation out there. Um, and also who to select and vote for. But I will also say it's important to understand that sometimes you may be voting out a woman in this process too, because there are there are some that do not necessarily stand in alignment um, with the values of um, you know bodily autonomy and reproductive access. So I think we have to talk about feminist candidates. We have to talk about electing feminist candidates and candidates who are going to be progressive and for pro-choice candidates is what we're looking for more than anything. And if, if that candidate is not pro-choice, there are not a feminist candidate who is for your own your autonomy, your free agency, and pro-choice and for you to make decisions for your own body, then those are the candidates that we have to hold accountable, vote out of their even office and that helps their promises, and then work hard to find people in our communities that are going to do what we need them to do and deliver. No, absolutely correct. It doesn't matter, male or female, the question is, are you pro-choice? choice. Exactly. Serena, has there been any work done by your office on how this issue breaks down uh, when you talk about Republican women or women who identify as Republican versus those that identify as Democrats? Well, what we do know to what uh, Ms. Venus was saying is that across partisan lines, voters have come out time and time again in state after state to rise up against abortion bans in whatever form they may take to support reproductive freedom. And what we've seen is that ignoring the will of the voters is a huge political liability for MAGA extremists and Republicans. And I hope that this is a message that it's clear that these extremist attacks work in opposition to the will of the people and are deeply unpopular with the majority of Americans. And the overwhelming majority of Americans support the legal right to abortion. And there's no state in the country where banning abortion is popular. And candidates who are supportive of abortion rights are proudly sharing their views and values with voters, and they're winning in red, blue, and purple states. And so this has to be viewed as something that will, as my colleague was saying, that pro-choice candidates, it's, it's necessary if you want to win. And that we have to stand behind candidates who are explicitly pro-choice particularly as we face this maternal, maternal mortality crisis that just has been exacerbated in the post-ops world. Just real quickly, Christian, before we run out of time, 
how do we make sure people are not falling for the way that some of these anti-abortion legislators are trying to change their records of, in terms of how they voted on abortion and trying to change the narrative around this issue uh, to suggest that they are somehow pro-life? Well, you know, I think this is where it's important that we definitely get out. Um, and and a couple of things is like, look at their voting records, you know, look at for those who are already in office, who are running, you know, incumbents, look at their voting records and how they've actually voted on pro-life type of bills. And I don't mean just, um, um, I, I, when I say pro-life type bills, I mean like, you know, uh, like I'm talking about uh, healthcare, I'm talking about you know um, child poverty bills, ch- uh, ch- child care things like that are really true pro- pro-life bills, right? And they want to use the language in the wrong way, and they want to extend disinformation about it. But if they're voting against helping people extend, they really are not pro. You know, they're misusing the language, and they're not really for the people. And so I think we have to push back on that messaging and really tell people um, what what they're really are talking about and their pro life is is not really for helping save people and helping um uh, truly empower people and sustain people's livelihoods but it is a very rigid controlled viewpoint that is there um and really kind of based somewhat in like some extremist racism white supremacy uh patriarchy viewpoints that really is happening. So we have to just make sure we're continually seeing the right information out, what pro-choice really means and what the viewpoints of those who are trying to claim pro-life or what they're doing and how they have never once really voted for anything that is trying to help empowerment the community. Um, and so I just say we, we push back on it. We show them the real facts, um, continue to show them the true information and show them what really true um, information is for pro-choice and how we're working toward making things better. Thank you so much, women. Uh, Thank you so much, Christian and Sabrina. I'm sorry, we are out of time. Always a pleasure to talk with both of you. When we come forward, we're going to talk to a law professor on this very issue. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 15 News. We are back, and in this hour, we are talking about the stunning decision by the Texas Supreme Court, which determined that 31-year-old Kate Cox could not have access to abortion care in its state and that the exceptions under its very restrictive six-week abortion ban law did not apply in her case. We're joined in this hour by Professor Michelle Goodwin. She is a constitutional law and global health policy Professor at Georgetown University Law School. Welcome, Professor Goodwin, and thank you so much for joining us. Help us understand what the Texas Supreme Court got wrong in its determination that Ms. Cox could not have access to abortion care in the state of Texas. Well, thank you so very much for having me back on your show. There are a number of paradoxes in this particular case. That is to say that there is a lot of doublespeak. So the first thing is that one will note by reading this very brief order, in fact, it's it's a bit stunning considering just what's at stake, how few words were actually written by the Supreme Court in this particular decision. It's less than 10 pages. It's only seven pages. But the first that one would take note of is that the court, even though it is the chief law uh, delegator, if you will, of the land in the state of Texas, as courts are, as our United States Supreme Court is for our nation, 
The court starts off by saying that it lacks power and authority, that the Texas legislature has spoken, and that it has no power to intervene against the uh, abortion bans that the court, that the legislature has established, or this exception. Then the next thing that the court goes on to say is that there is a significant exception, which would lead one to believe that this is a very broad and deep exception that has been enacted into law in the state of Texas. But that's actually not the case. If it, in fact, were a more significant exception, then one might find that Ms. Cox would not need to leave the state of Texas in order to terminate what is already a fatal non-viable pregnancy. So the exception that exists is not so significant at all. In fact, one might say that it's not significant, it's not meaningful, and it's not uh, accessible. The next thing that the court goes on to say, which again is a bit of a paradox and a double speak, is to say that people who are in conditions that meet the exception for the state don't need to appeal to courts, but that these are matters that the state will defer to the uh, decision-making of doctors. But that, too, is only challenged by the facts in this case because the lower court, the district court, which is the court that assesses facts, it gathers facts, it does the fact-finding, in the facts that it found, was that this pregnancy is one that is non-viable to carry this pregnancy, which is now more than 20 weeks, it's 21 weeks, risks the life of a Kate Cox. Um, the pregnancy itself is non-viable. And if Kate Cox were to even survive this pregnancy, it would mean that uh, she might be infertile in the future or might have difficulty being able to sustain another birth. What's interesting there is that the court, even though the district court had this in its record and it had this in its record because of data from the doctors involved, um, it's a paradox. Court says that, you know, one doesn't need to go to court. It's going to rely on the words of doctors. Doctors had spoken and the lower court had issued its decision and this court decided not to abide by it. But even more, I think it's worth those who tune in to understand that in the state of Texas, the disgraced attorney general there, Ken Paxton, immediately after (laughs) the lower court's decision, then wrote to local hospitals threatening them, explaining that he would, in fact, prosecute and take this to the fullest extent of the law to uh, make sure that she would not receive an abortion in the state of Texas. So again, even though the court says there's a significant exception, doctors don't need to do very much, you have a state attorney general that appealed to the Supreme Court and threatened doctors. Now, what does that threat mean in the state of Texas? And I'll wrap up. Well, in Texas, if you are found to have breached this very draconian uh, law, one of the thickest abortion bans in the country, then you risk as a physician losing your medical license to practice. You risk up to 100 years in car- 99 years incarceration and a $100,000 fine. So it's not insignificant the risks that doctors and hospitals are placed in if they choose to try to support their pregnant patients who, have, um, who meet the standards for the exception. So, Professor Goodwin, we know that the court tries to make this decision very narrow. 
you know, make it only about Kate Cox, but how might this decision be used to basically, you know, make it impossible for anyone to meet the exception standard under the Texas six-week abortion ban law? Well, Ariva, that's a very important question, and you asked such important and insightful questions because this is the state Supreme Court. So even while the court might or the legislature might or Ken Paxton might say this is very narrowly drawn, this decision, it applies only to Kate Cox, no one else need fear in the state of Texas, well, nothing would be further than the truth because what the court has basically done is to um, to force the hand of the district court in this case to vacate the stay, which would allow uh, Ms. Cox to terminate this pregnancy. It basically means that other women and girls in the state of Texas who find themselves with non-viable pregnancies that threaten their lives, that this would be a case that could have precedential value in those particular circumstances. But there's something more. Not everyone can afford lawyers. Not everyone will come to the attention of lawyers. And that's important to note. That affects poor women. It affects women of color. That means that there are those who are rendered invisible who will understand that this case means that they really don't have a voice. And it will have a chilling effect for those individuals. Now, it's also important to note that this is not the first time that the state of Texas uh, has demonstrated such lack of compassion or cruelty, if you will, towards pregnant women in the state. Even though um, the SB8 legislation, which bans abortions after six weeks, no exceptions for rape and incest, et cetera, which is the law on the books in, in the state of Texas, that law went into effect um, the same Supreme Court term that Dobbs was over, overturned, the, the, the law went into effect the September before. But it was a decade in the making that Texas has been drafting laws that make it very difficult for doctors to provide the reproductive health care services for their patients. There have been dozens of clinics that provide not only abortion care services, but also contraception that provide uh, breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screenings, um, other kinds of screenings, um, testing for sexually transmitted um, diseases and, and infections. In the state of Texas, for more than the decade, there has been the drying up of all of those kinds of resources that are most relied upon by um, low-income persons, persons who are wealthier, are able to use their insurance and go to their medical providers. But there were so many millions of poor women in the state of Texas that relied on clinics being available. And, and let me just add this to the mix, which is to say that Texas is considered the deadliest place in all of the industrialized, developed world for a woman to be pregnant. That is because of its incredibly high maternal mortality rate. A lot of that has to do with the fact that for more than a decade, Texas has worked very hard to shut down clinics, to threaten doctors, to make it very difficult for doctors to be able to practice reproductive health care, and it's created a chilling effect for anyone with the potential for pregnancy in that state. When we come forward, Professor, I want to talk about 
did the Supreme Court, in your opinion, the U.S. Supreme Court, anticipate cases like Kate Cox that all over the country, particularly in these states that have enacted these kinds of restrictive laws, that women would have to go into courts with doctor's notes from their doctors and ask for permission from judges, not medical professionals, in order to get the best health care. I want to get your take on that. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back with Georgetown Law Professor Michelle Goodwin. And Professor Goodwin, I just cannot imagine that the members of the U.S. Supreme Court would not have known that the chaos that we are witnessing in Texas would be the outcome of overturning Roe v. Wade. You and I talked a lot uh, after that case was uh, the Dobbs decision was handed down, the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. But what are you thinking, uh, you know, as, as the Supreme Court justices are watching what's happening in states like Texas. Is this what they wanted to happen? And if not, you know, how do we get back to a place where women control their own reproductive choices and their own health care? Well, how much time do we have in terms of taking <laughs> apart what it is that they might have expected or wanted? So one might expect ex- for example, that Justice Alito uh, might have, in fact, uh, been able to, that all of the, well, let's back up and say that the justices do uh, convene together. They do talk about the cases. Their clerks do write memos and give them an assessment about what the scope and scale of their decisions can mean to the American public and even uh, globally. So the thought that somehow the court couldn't have seen or that there wasn't somehow some forecasting of this um, would not be correct because just the, you know, what they knew from the dissenting judges, the justices, they would have had some idea of the real risks that were associated with overturning Roe v. Wade and decided to do so anyway. One might say that Justice Alito, citing to um, treatises from the 14th, 15th, 16th century at a time in which women lacked the power to be able to, well, first of all, there was no United States at that time, but uh, when the United States did come into being, women did not have the right to vote the very um, legal minds that Justice Alito cited were ones who wrote about coverture, meaning that women lacked independent identity. Coverture laws made it legal for men to be able to rape their wives without any kind of criminal punishment. For centuries, American women lived under the terrible arc of coverture uh, realities, deeming domestic violence to be fine so long as people shut the doors and women weren't broken in two. And so this is these were the reaches of Justice Alito in coming to the decision in Dobbs. This should not be a surprise to anyone. It should not be a surprise that we see girls going into middle school with twins now after rape or incest should not be a surprise that immediately after Dobbs, there was a 10-year-old girl escaping the state of Ohio to get to Indiana in order to terminate a pregnancy, even though 
when the case was first brought to light, there were state lawmakers uh, in Ohio that said it was a hoax, that things like this didn't happen, that 10 and 12 year old girls don't get pregnant. Of course, that also shows that there's been a significant disregard for health and science um, in these anti-abortion states and then also amongst legislatures and the courts. So how, Professor Goodwin, do we get back? You know, there's talk about a national piece of legislation that would make abortion legal again. I mean, is that something that you can anticipate happening? There are lawmakers that are fighting back. There are doctors that are fighting back. There are civil society organizations that are fighting back. The Center for Reproductive Rights has been leading litigation in this domain. So has the ACLU been doing that. There are uh, senators in Congress, uh, as, along with representatives that have been pushing forward legislation known as the Women's Health Protection Act, which would essentially uh, codify Roe v. Wade with some caveats around that. Uh, we do see that the referenda efforts have been winning. That is not to say that there aren't roadblocks in the way in some states where those referenda have yet to come to fruition given legacies of voter suppression. So there is, I believe, going to be uh, a return to reproductive freedom, but it's not going to be by sitting on hands. Um, and unfortunately, it may mean this coming very close to people's lives. And I think that that's why these referenda are winning. When you see that these referenda are prevailing in states that are red states, meaning that in red states there are people that are voting to ensconce constitutional rights to abortion in their state's constitutions, I have said and I truly believe that there are parents, there are moms who are Republican who sit at the dinner table and who look at their eight and nine-year-old daughters, look at their 10 and 12-year-old daughters, and they know deeply in their hearts, in their minds, what sexual assault means. They know what rape means. Even if it's not touched them personally, they know the risks of it are real. And then they have to contend with the following. If their 10-year-old happens to be molested by a member of the family or somebody down the street, should their 10-year-old be saddled with becoming a mother by the age of 11? Now, that makes no sense that we would be a country that would say, yes, we do believe that 10-year-olds should carry the term highly risky pregnancies and become mothers before going into middle school. It makes absolutely no sense. And I believe that in these red states, there are moms who recognize that it makes no sense. But of course, that takes voting and it takes many other efforts in order to basically um, move those agendas out of those states. No, I think you're absolutely correct. And the more of those stories that are told uh, in the national news, the national media, I think the more women and men start to realize what is at stake and why this is such an urgent, urgent issue. Uh, real quickly, have we seen any cases in any other states, states like Texas that have very restrictive abortion laws? Have we seen any cases like the Kate Cox uh, case? Well, there are cases that are gearing up. There is one in the state of Kentucky uh, that is gearing up, and I'm sure that there will be others. In some ways, this is a, uh, you know, uh, Rosa Parks kind of test case. Um, 
And you know what this represents is really making bringing full frontal um, the new Jane Crow uh, in the United States. And I think it's appropriate to actually use the language and recognize the language of American slavery and involuntary servitude in these instances, as well as Jim Crow. I know that some people may be resistant to that because they say, well, this is a white woman. How can this be like slavery? But slavery is not something that is a condition that is limited to people of a particular melanation or complexion. Slavery and involuntary servitude can happen to anyone of any gender, of any kind of racial or ethnic background. And we see this now being imposed upon women in the United States, this forced involuntary servitude, not something that benefits them and in fact places them in significant risk of their life, of their livelihood, of their education, all of that by forcing them to continue pregnancies that they do not want that are highly risky. And let me just be clear, all pregnancies are risky. And this is how far we've gone, right? Because a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion in the United States. It's been the rhetoric that's been pushed by anti-abortion legislators that would make people think the opposite, that somehow carrying pregnancies to term actually make women better off it is actually not the case. I am a mom. I love my daughter, M Mrs. Cox. She is a mother of two already. She wanted this pregnancy, but let's be clear, pregnancy in the United States can be and is far too often a deadly proposition. I'm so glad you used the term involuntary servitude. It's been a minute since I've been in law school. And so terms like that that I knew very well and, and used very often don't often get used in my day-to-day -day life. And as I read that case, that's what I was thinking. Like, we are literally forcing women to carry fetuses in their bodies. We're making them, you know, these carriers of fetuses without any regard for their own life. And then we call some of these people, call themselves pro-lifers. And they care nothing about the life of the woman. And we know they care nothing about the life of children because they vote against health care. They vote against, you know, access to education. They vote against those things that make life possible. So there's so many ironies in this narrative. And, and thank you for your brilliance and your insight. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this really, really stunning case of Kate Cox in Texas. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more uh, as these other cases make their way through the court system around the country. Again, Michelle Goodwin, professor of law at Georgetown University.